0: Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners, I hope everyone is having a great end of summer with going back to school and vacations and everything that is going on. And I hope you've been safe from all the bugs going around. I currently am suffering from laryngitis, which is why I sound like this and why you haven't heard from me in a while. But also the Heart of Healthcare team is taking a break this week as we review grant applications for the Heart of Healthcare $50,000 Grant Challenge. Stay tuned because we will be airing the semifinalists for you to vote on very soon. In the meantime, I thought we would share an episode from a new podcast I'm working on. Don't worry Heart of healthcare isn't going anywhere, but I'm excited to be launching this entirely new show. Closing Time is a podcast where you, the listener, get to be a fly on the wall during a startup pitch meeting. Imagine being in the room where passionate entrepreneurs are pitching their healthcare startups, the innovations that could very well shape the future of healthcare or not. (laughs) This podcast allows you to do just that. It's meant for founders, investors, or anyone enthusiastic about the future of healthcare. So today we're going to play an episode for you, and I'd love any feedback that you have. And if you like it, you can subscribe and listen to this on Wednesdays. Heart of Healthcare will still be out on Mondays. I hope you enjoy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco,
1: And I'm Michael Escabel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently.
0: So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today, we are here with Lisa Alderson, the co-founder of Clarified Precision Medicine, making world-class precision medicine expertise accessible to every cancer patient and every oncology practice. And our guest VC today is Dina Shocker, general partner at Lux Capital, who has invested in companies like Maven Clinic, A Life, SteadyMD, H1, and many, many more. Dina and Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's fantastic
2: to be here. Really looking forward to it.
0: Likewise. Thanks for having me. Lisa, maybe you can start by telling us about your background and what led you to start Clarified Precision Medicine.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I am a longtime entrepreneur, founded my first company when I was in college. And now I have either started or, you know, founded or been a part of the startup team at about eight companies. And I have kind of an interesting life story in that I moved from consumer and tech into healthcare. And I think in the era in which we are now living and really bringing forward digital health solutions and trying to build solutions that bring some of the best practices from consumer and tech into a patient journey and just deeper engagement for the consumer that, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have had some of those life experiences before I found myself in healthcare. And over most of the last... 20 years, I've been deeply involved in the field of genomics, so working to advance the adoption of precision medicine, first in molecular diagnostics at Genomic Health and Invitae, and then most recently in virtual care delivery, bridging some of the care gaps in genetics and genomics when I founded Genome Medical. And I founded Genome Medical in 2016, and it's now the leading telehealth provider delivering genetics based care to patients all around the country, covered benefit for about 170 million people. And so with Clarified Precision Medicine, I'm continuing this journey on how we bring forward and advance access to the latest advancements in care and genomics, uh, but really focusing on some of the care gaps. And in the case of Clarified Precision Medicine, it's really focused on precision oncology. So look forward to sharing more about that. So what is
0: Clarified Precision Medicine setting out to do?
2: We're a digital health company that is working to help support oncologists and better utilizing the advancements in genomics. And what that means is that over the last 10 to 20 years, there's been a lot of progress in how we can better diagnose disease, understand the oncogenic drivers that are driving cancer, and then looking to targeted therapies, you know, cell therapies, gene therapies, immunotherapies that can help us better treat cancer and do so in ways that have less toxicity, better outcomes, and better survival rates. And the challenge is that there's often a gap between where the advancements in science and medicine and even, you know, advancements in reimbursement coverage are and where patient access and physician adoption are. And, you know... Ideally, we're trying to bring those closer together so that as the science and medicine and technology are advancing, we're actually bringing that into clinical care to benefit the patients today rather than just a decade into the future. And so really, Clarified Precision Medicine is a clinical support tool that helps oncologists utilize the right set of tests, often that's sequencing a tumor, so profiling the tumor itself to better understand which targeted therapies should be used in the treatment of cancer. And what many people may not know is that often historically, you know, selecting cancer treatments can be a bit trial and error. And now we're entering into an era where it's much more precise and driven off of biomarkers, genetic markers, oncogenic drivers, and other factors that allow us to target that specific cancer in a in a um, superior way.
3: Lisa, I'm always interested in a, in a founder's journey into a health tech startup. I think um, almost everyone I've ever met and or invested in has a deep personal connection to what they're building. And for you in particular, you have such a robust. And storied career from, as you mentioned, consumer internet to entertainment and beyond. Can you share a bit more about why this is the problem you sought out to solve, and and sort of the founding story behind the company?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, first it started around the year 2000 when, as a country and world, we were sequencing the first human genome, and uh, you know, I found that it was pretty obvious. To me and many others, that this would unlock a new era and the new opportunity for much more precise clinical care and personalized clinical care. And really, simultaneous with that, I had just gone through, you know, the dot com boom and the dot com bust era of 1999 and 2000, and it has me had me really kind of introspective in terms of where and how I was spending my time. And if I felt as though I was applying a skill set in the best and highest use manner. And I think having lived through, you know, starting tech companies and then, you know, in that case, I was able to create a nice exit for my business. But it it really left me feeling like I, I wanted to work in ways that were much more meaningful. And around the same time, Kleiner Perkins was a new investor in Genomic Health, which was really one of the first precision medicine companies. And Kleiner had been an investor in in my prior businesses. And so looking to keep me somewhere in the portfolio, we spoke about genomic health as an opportunity. And my initial reaction was, you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't know a lot about genomics. But, you know, the answer to that was at this point in time, unless you're a bioinformatician or a PhD scientist, like. In the field, there there really hasn't been, you know, sort of the business side to genomics because we were sequencing the first human genome. And so as such, uh, I really got involved in, in genomic health. And then subsequent, obviously, uh, as I've stayed in the industry and even personally, I will say I am a cancer survivor myself, but have had many family members address this encounter and friends. And, you know, there's just such an obvious need to really help and impact this generation. And that's actually really what's led to me being a co-founder at Clarified Precision Medicine because I know from my own cancer journey, where I was seen at a leading academic medical center, I really had to be an advocate to have my tumor sequenced and to be able to utilize that information to improve my own care. And obviously I feel like I'm in a more, advantage position than the average person, given the depth of knowledge and experience I have in the industry. And so it's really all about how do we bring this forward to all patients everywhere, no matter where you're being seen. And most patients are seen in a community setting, like 80% of cancer patients. Uh, So we need that same level of knowledge and expertise for every oncologist and every patient to be able to tap.
1: You know, Lisa, this is super inspiring to me, the whole notion of really democratizing access to this incredible information and these amazing treatments. As we think about, as you said, it sounds like a super majority of Americans battling cancer receive their treatment in these community settings. And so as you, as you move forward with, with the business, how do you tackle really, really achieving that mission of democratizing this precision oncology?
2: Yeah, thank you. So there's two things we're doing. First, it actually starts with a software solution. So we have built out a technology platform that allows us to ingest information from lab testing. So somatic tumor profiling, you know, as well as pharmacogenomics testing, which looks at your genes and the interactions with drugs and helps to try to inform, you know, which drugs will have higher efficacy and of course to stay away from drugs where there could be you know an adverse reaction and as such we start with a software enabled solution that allows us to bring a more scalable solution forward but also one that's really grounded in medical management guidelines and those guidelines are of course dynamic and ever evolving and so by having a physician adopt our solution they have the confidence that They are current with medical management guidelines, and they are getting some added guidance that is software-enabled, but we also then route, after this goes through the software algorithms, we then route to leading clinical specialists, so leading oncologists, leading pharmacists that are confirming and validating that treatment plan. And so by doing so, it allows us to bring that best-in-class clinical expertise out to more patients without having to have those leading oncologists directly see the patient. So this is equivalent in many ways to what would be called a molecular tumor board. A molecular tumor board, for those that are not as knowledgeable about this space, is usually reserved for only a small number of patients who have the most complex cases and are being seen at leading academic medical centers. So it's a very small fraction of cancer patients that then receive the review and guidance of many leading experts at that institution. And usually that's like a medical oncologist, a surgical oncologist, a geneticist or genetic counselor, you know, a radiologist and others. And so we're creating the equivalency of that, but in a much more scalable and cost-effective format. And our vision really is to allow this to then be adopted for every cancer patient and in so doing, improve the quality of care, the access to care, and ultimately the cost of care because obviously oncology treatment is expensive. And if you can get to a higher efficacy treatment faster, it saves cost.
3: I have a question. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in a company called Trial Library, which I think would actually be an amazing partner if you don't know them already, founded by an oncologist out of UCSF, Dr. Halaborno. That company is focused on the patient recruitment side for clinical trials, but is also engaging specifically with the community clinics. And so I think there could be some interesting potential partnership there. But One of their main areas of focus is around increasing diversity and inclusion in clinical trials. So sort of a two-part question for you. One, how do you think about trial recruitment in the context of patient care versus more traditional, if such a thing exists, oncology care? And secondly, have you come up across this problem of diversity and inclusion as well in your partnerships with these clinics?
2: Yeah, certainly. So let me take that in the two parts. So first, we are most focused on actionable clinical care today. So where medical management guidelines are in place and, you know, where there is a, you know, kind of clear guidance and recommendation on therapeutic selection, but we're enhancing that decision-making ability by ensuring the patient's getting to the right therapy faster, right? So that that is our focus today. That said, we do see and envision in the future an area of opportunity to work more closely with CROs and pharma and in the community setting to recruit and enroll in clinical trials. And that basically goes upstream, right, so that we can bring, you know, new therapies to market faster to then inform and improve clinical care in the future. And so that's very much a part of the vision. It is not our core focus today. And partnering in those areas will become critical and important, And what I would say is that, in general, I see an opportunity to bring closer together clinical trials and actual clinical care. In other words, there's a lot of siloed data that can often exist today, and it's not as enhanced and as rich of a feedback loop as I would like to see to allow, you know, those precious R&D dollars to kind of be more impactful and translate ultimately into clinical care faster. So as an example, if as part of a clinical trial, patients are receiving certain testing or certain imaging, it's not always utilized then to advance their actual treatment. And so how do we bridge and, you know, kind of unify some of those approaches? I think that's another area of opportunity. Again, not one clarified precision medicine is specifically addressing, uh, <laughs> but but another area of opportunity.
0: Yeah, you guys have to make that intro because that sounds like a great partnership. Um, Lisa, I have a three-part question. Yeah. How does um, this clinical support tool get into the hands of the oncologist and into their existing workflows? These are folks who already are just burdened with various inter- not connected um, software tools. And then who pays for it?
2: Yeah, great questions. So one, we definitely recognize the need to save time and to be embedded in existing workflows. So we are seeking to partner with organizations that will enhance us being able to get in front of the oncologist. And one of those is an EHR partner that works heavily in oncology practices So that is part of our overall go-to-market strategy. The other part of it is that this is a time-savings measure, and it's it's also a reduction in liability because it allows you to, again, ensure you're bringing forward the latest advancements in medical management guidelines and targeted therapy choices. And so the combination, we feel, creates a strong value proposition for the physician. The other thing that's important to note is that uh, a full 80% of primary care physicians and the majority of oncologists feel as though they need increased knowledge and education to be adopting these solutions. And so what happens is less than 30% of the patients that should be getting access to testing, whether that be somatic tumor profiling, germline genetic testing, pharmacogenomics testing, are actually getting that testing. And it's complex today because, you know, different insurance companies cover different tests for different patients and in different scenarios. And so understanding who should be tested, when is it medically indicated, and how to interpret the results from testing is way more burdensome than it should be. So a solution like clarified precision medicine can actually make that far less burdensome. And even for top experts, we're hearing feedback that they appreciate it because they are so time constrained that it allows the, you know, the, the software solution combined with the clinical expertise as a review, allows them to actually drive to decisions that they would derive to on their own, but in a more expedient manner. So we see the value there. In terms of who pays, we are pushing forward with reimbursement coverage for our solution. And we are currently a covered benefit for about 41 million people in the U.S. And we are on the cusp of being able to just start to build Medicare. So we're really excited about those opportunities um, and
0: we'll continue to be pushing forward with reimbursement coverage. And what's the service that's actually reimbursed? Is it the testing piece? Is it the clinical expertise piece? It's for a
2: clarified precision medicine, it's the clinical expertise piece yeah. and it's the software enabled clinical expertise. Uh, testing is also generally a covered benefit. And in particular, we're trying to guide that care gap where it is medically indicated, it is reimbursed, and yet the patient is not getting it. That's what we're really trying to solve for is how how do we move that faster so that patients are getting that appropriate testing and that is being utilized to guide their treatment choices, and that is then improving clinical care.
1: Lisa, how big is the team? I mean, it's it's such an exciting um, you know vision here. How big's the team today? And would love to hear. I, I know you recently announced a, a pilot program with uh, with with VKit Cure. Would love would love to hear a little more about that.
2: Yeah, so we are a very scrappy team. Um, we are really founder invested uh, at this point. We are uh, just undergoing a, a seed financing. And much of our team includes real leaders and experts in this field. So, in addition to myself, Lincoln Nadald and Howard McLeod and Jody Simon are my co founders. Um, and these are all individuals that have really brought forward precision medicine programs and specifically precision oncology to clinical care settings in innovative and scalable ways. And so we're trying to bring our collective knowledge and expertise to now have broader impact for patients and oncologists everywhere. And so we're very mission-driven founders uh, that see this challenge. It is a very clearly identified need in the market. I mean, I think if you surveyed a dozen oncologists, they, they would agree with that need. But, you know, we're still a pretty lean team because we're just commencing our first institutional round of funding. So uh, so we're we're you know, we're about a dozen people, a little less. Some of those are part time, uh, you know, and in, in working on this on the side still.
3: Lisa, I'd love to hear a little bit about. What you are hearing from oncologists in terms of the other solutions, if any, that they have come across? In other words, what does the competitive landscape look like for your company? And how do you think about that in terms of your go-to-market strategy? Yeah,
2: I mean, this is this is still a somewhat nascent area. What I would say is that there has been a tremendous amount of investment both, both into diagnostics and therapeutics in improving Diagnostic solutions and therapeutic decisions, you know, or opportunities, I should say, new therapies on the market. But my general observation, and this is what first led me to found Genome Medical and now Clarified Precision Medicine, is that with so much capital going into these, you know, improved assays and improved, thera- you know, targeted therapies, that promise is going to be unrealized unless we can actually get it into the hands of physicians and ultimately, by extension, the patients. And so I've come to view this broad ecosystem as needing most focus on that, what I often refer to as the last mile, right? Like we've built all of this improved infrastructure, you know, huge advancements in science, huge advancements in the, even the adoption by, you know, insurance and by medical management, professional societies and guidelines. But yet we have this kind of final bottleneck in really getting those solutions adopted. And so that to me is really where we need the investment. And so there are some competitive solutions out there, but they're all at about a similar stage. We're all pretty early. And so I would say that, you know, this next frontier really comes in recognizing how do we better equip physicians, not just in oncology, but in other areas to be able to practice medicine. We keep putting more on them in a lot more I don't know, just uh, regulatory compliance and, you know, without really having more time. And so, so much of the job is sort of shifted. And so our goal is to, you know, use software and ultimately AI and ML in ways that allow physicians to practice medicine, spend time with their patients, drive to improve decision-making, and do that in ways that, aren't onerous that integrate into current workflows.
0: Yeah. Once you get to scale with oncologists, I do think there's a nice moat because the cost of switching is very high and they've started to invest in seeing patients through the journey on this platform. So I, I think it's going to be really important to get to scale before your competitors. How are you thinking about just the go-to-market strategy in that way?
2: Yeah. And let me just clarify one thing. We see okay. this as embedding into other platforms okay. as opposed to That's really the, being yeah. the standalone solution. Yeah. And so I think from a go-to-market strategy perspective, there is a desire to move fast and build yeah. those right channel partner relationships. and Like the EHR uh, one. Like the EHR earlier. one yeah. that we mentioned, yeah. uh, because that allows us then you know, I mean, that's kind of a, a a one type of partner, right? Like, typically, you wouldn't offer, you know, three of these solutions uh, through, yeah. you know, the single EHR platform. And so we see that as currently a competitive
0: advantage, but one that we want to continue to yeah.
2: really accelerate.
0: And how many of the, those partners do you think you would need to get a good scale in the market? Yeah, I
2: mean, Ultimately, obviously, our vision is that we can be utilized for every cancer patient. Now, the reality of that is, uh, you know, I would call that in the in the aspirational dreaming stage <laughs> as opposed to of the course. reality stage. As so, you should be doing as a founder. <laughs> exactly. Like so. if, if you if you know me, one thing you know is I am like the eternal optimist. I just am. Love
3: and it. having started you your founder, Lisa, so that's you're in, in the saying, right job.
2: Especially. especially as many companies as I have helped to build because you know it uh it's it's a it's a challenging journey right like you yeah. know you're going to hit some speed bumps along the way so that's what I would say is you know even with the announced partnership with VCure, we feel like that allows us to get to about 20% of community oncologists hopefully more than that, and we have some other partnerships uh, not yet announced that we're excited about that allows us to continue to work to penetrate that market. And in general, I would say I think we're going to see consolidation in the market, and we already are, like certainly a, the diagnostics uh, area of the ecosystem. But you know, I, I think that'll be true um, with a number of these uh, solutions like clarified precision medicine as well.
1: So maybe I, I take us a slightly different direction, Lisa, and love to come back to the team for a minute. One of the key points that I know is top of mind for Dina and, and investors generally is, you know, making sure the team is properly incentivized, making sure everybody feels that there's enough skin in the game, if you will, and, and they've, they've got enough upside opportunity. One of the challenges I've encountered from time to time when dealing with larger co-founding teams like this one is making sure that that everybody does have a meaningful equity stake on the cap table. And I noted that there, there was some reference that there might even be an incoming CEO to complement the original co-founding team. So, so sometimes it can be challenging for investors to see, you know, the key drivers of the business have relatively modest equity stakes compared to sort of smaller co-founding teams. And so just to, How how have you or your co-founders thought about about how do we ensure that everybody stays really in it, everybody's super inspired and motivated, and and there's enough upside for everybody to win when we turn this incredible opportunity into a massive business?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so first, we are mission-driven founders, which means that we care deeply about the patient care and patient impact, and that is probably our number one driver. The second is that, as I said, it's 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 you know been founder funded. Uh, that means that we are building a mindset of being pretty scrappy. And I've mentioned a few of the elements of traction we have which having started a number of companies, I will just say is pretty impressive given we have yet to take outside institutional funding. So that helps with overall uh, expected dilution. Now, we are excited to be actually you know, leading an institutional round and we have a, a lead investor for that. So we're excited to bring that forward and that will allow us to really expand the team and ultimately have bigger impact. I think the last thing I would say on this is that You know, we see Clarified Precision Medicine as ultimately a pretty capital-efficient company. The total amount of capital raised will be well below most of the prior companies I've been involved with. So, you know, that also will ultimately help with the dilutionary aspects of it.
3: You sort of pre-answered what my question was, and maybe you can elaborate a bit more in terms of, you know, how much you're raising with this initial seed round, when you expect subsequent rounds to be, and tell us a bit more about why you expect the capital raises over time to be less than what you've done uh, in the past even though healthcare often requires significant capital upfront vis-a-vis other companies
2: yeah, no that's fair uh, so for this round uh, we are looking to raise two million and you know we are intending to close pretty short order so excited about bringing bringing in that additional capital. In terms of total capital needed, my expectation is that it will be in the kind of 10 to 15 million range. And the reason why that is as efficient as it is, is that um, we have been working away and developing the technology. We have solutions already in market. And partly because of the extended experience of the founding team, we just have such a ready-made network and relationships that were just able to be much more, you know, efficient than I think often would be the case. There's also just lessons learned. I mean, I I learned a lot in the building out of genome medical uh, in ways in which to perhaps refine you know, business models and just think about being more capital efficient with strategy. So there's also, you know, some improvement and lessons learned there. And for Genome Medical, I'd raised about $120 million, so much larger. And of course, Invitae and many of the large molecular diagnostic labs that I've, you know, previously been affiliated with raised far more than that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, it, it is um, it's a mantra of today's time. And we are, you know, taking that very seriously.
1: Elisa, well, I assume that $2 is coming in in the form of a safe or a convertible note type structure, and, and not as a priced equity round.
2: That's right. It, you know, we kind of debated, and um, the reason we decided to do it as a convertible note is that we do have such strong momentum and market traction that we would prefer to extend the time under which we then price for the next raise.
0: Michael and our lawyer, do you want to just give a, to our listeners yeah, a quick understanding of what is a convertible note and a safe and a price round
1: yeah absolutely and uh, yeah, and i'm, I'm I, I couldn't i couldn't echo your comments more lisa on on the efficiency here, so just quickly for our listeners, a you know there's really three ways to raise seed capital in in today 's environment. you can either do a convertible like instrument on one end of the spectrum or you can do an actual price preferred equity round, typically labeled a series seed, S-E-E-D, preferred stock round. And the the advantages of the convertible note or safe approach are that it it avoids uh, having to document, negotiate, and and, and therefore spend time and legal resources documenting a preferred price equity round. It, 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 It allows us to take in capital in a, in a very uh, lightweight form. And uh, as a result, um, y- you know, you can do it with just in the case of a SAFE, literally one document, and it provides, SAFE, by the way, stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. And it provides a mechanism by which you take in capital today. And when the company raises its first-priced preferred stock round, where it actually does sell preferred equity, that SAFE will convert into the round, typically at either a post-money valuation cap or sometimes also uh, with a discount into that round to give those seed investors some upside for the risk they took in the early days of the business. Uh, a A convertible note and a safe are essentially identical. The two big characteristic differences between those two instruments are that the convertible note has an interest rate and it has a maturity date component. So prior to the recent run-up of rate increases by the Federal Reserve, interest rates used to hover in that 1% range. And so the real difference on the interest rate element between a safe and convertible note were non-existent. Unfortunately, in today's market now with the uh, the run-up in, in rates, now uh, convertible notes can be quite expensive because we're seeing interest rates anywhere from 5% per- or 6% on the low end, and I've seen them as high as 8 to 10% on the high end. Uh, the other key difference between safes and notes are there's a maturity date. And uh, the safe has no maturity date, whereas a convertible note, which is a, a more of a debt-like instrument, has a maturity date element to it. So that's one end of the spectrum. And you really do kick the entire valuation negotiation discussion to a later point when uh, you're raising your first priced equity round. On the other end of the spectrum, as I said, you could just outright price the round and sell preferred equity in the form of series seed preferred stock. So, Lisa, for $2 million, the conventional sort of wisdom that's emerged, at least amongst the legal sector, is that uh, if you're raising $3 million or less, doing it as a safer convertible note is going to be far more cost effective, far more efficient. If you're raising $5 million or north, there is starts to get pressure to price it and to go ahead and issue preferred stock equity to those investors. And of course, that middle gray zone between 3 and $5 million, uh, we see it go uh, either way. So, Lisa, I think with a $2 million target for this seed round makes a lot of sense. The, the other key thing, Lisa, for you to consider, and I'm not sure, I'm sure you co-founders all thought about it. You you've mentioned now a couple of times that the company's bootstrapped by the founders, which, which I love. The capital efficiency is awesome. I'm hoping that you guys either made those investments in the form of a straight promissory note into the business, or or maybe you guys also invested via a safer or convertible note structure. If in fact those bootstrap dollars that you all invested were were meaningful, meaningful sums.
2: Yeah, no, that's an important note. So thank you for calling that out uh, for other founders to be aware of and make sure you're documenting those expenses and ultimately then participating in the cap table through that as well.
1: Yeah, there's just a tendency sometimes I've seen founders to just sort of put capital into the business. And and maybe it's a if it's a few thousand dollars, doing it as a reimbursement makes sense. But when you're really bootstrapping a company and putting in meaningful capital, uh, I think it's important to either put a promise or a note structure in place where it's just a straight note. And then you can have a conversation with your investors at the time of funding, whether to convert that into future equity or to or to get some portion of it reimbursed in the form of cash reimbursement. But I think it's really critical that founders make sure that if they are putting as I said, meaningful capital into the business in the bootstrap phase that uh, that, that's documented and and properly recorded and all of the necessary, you
3: know, supporting documentation is kept together.
2: Yep. Thanks for that call out, Michael. Appreciate that.
3: Such awesome advice for your listeners, Hallie and Michael, coming from <laughs> that's you. That's why I picked a lawyer as a co-host. It, that's awesome. <laughs> Lisa, quick question for you. You know, you have been involved in a number of different companies and ra- which have raised lots of money and have had different outcomes. And so I imagine you have a clear answer to this, but I'm curious if you could share a bit more around your vision for sort of the outcome here. Is this something that you think after raising, I think you said 10 to 15 million is a, you know, a, a profitable company that stays private, or something that eventually becomes a public company, or or perhaps finds a home within a larger entity. Uh, any thoughts on on where this company lands in the future?
2: Yeah, so I mentioned this briefly, but I definitely see consolidation in the market, and ultimately, I think that is beneficial for both patients and providers because it brings more unified, holistic solutions to bear. Obviously, when you're you know starting a new company, you can't. You know, solve our healthcare challenges <laughs> universally. Yeah. Uh, so they tend to be, you know, uh, you know, more targeted, uh, specific solutions. But ultimately, you know, what is sometimes referred to as a point solution is not as effective as being much more unified and integrated into a broader ecosystem. So, phase 1 for us is really building those detailed partnerships that allow us to have broader impact, be embedded in work current workflows, etc. Uh, but I would imagine that at some point in the future, as we see more consolidation in the market, that our impact at Clarified will actually be, you know, most tremendous and broader as part of additional uh, solutions. So I would envision that in this particular instance, uh, it is is probably more likely to have a home
0: with a with a larger
2: organization.
0: Amazing. Lisa, we are so impressed with what you're doing. And with you, thank you so much for being here and sharing your vision. What is the best way for listeners to learn more and follow your journey?
2: Yeah, so one, you can DM me on Twitter. I'm just at Lisa A. If you're interested in learning more about this particular financing, the best avenue is probably just emailing info at Clarified. Uh, let's see. What is it? Clarifiedmedicine.com. <laughs> well, Wanted to make sure I didn't get that wrong. It's not precise, <laughs> though.
0: <laughs> Info at clarifiedmedicine.com. That's it. Yes. Amazing. And Dina, thank you for being our guest. BC, your insights and questions are always so great.
3: Thanks for having me. Great to chat with you all. And Lisa, wonderful to hear more about your story. Thank you. Appreciate this. This is fun.
1: Thank you both. It's amazing. Thank you.
0: And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Techo and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time.